This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. Okay, Rach. Well, what are we talking about? This is um, the final episode of season nine. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, a couple of overlapping concepts, really. So I wanted to talk about sentience, technology, and environmental ethics. And I think that these are all really closely related and all really present before everyone's minds right now mm-hmm. so, or or ought to be yeah yeah <laughs> if they're well, not you're, uh, you're you, not paying attention you'd have to be living under a rock really i think um so uh, raise a few examples one of which is a funny story that happened to us the other night yeah a couple what about two and a half weeks ago was it really that long ago now yeah, oh, yeah. It, feels, it feels like it was just a couple of days ago yeah it was it was the night of the super bowl was it really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. So anyway, I'm 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 out. I like to sometimes they messed with your sense of time. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I, so I'm out for a run with my dog. Sometimes I like to go out at night because our dog can kind of get aggressive. To, not aggressive exactly. She's actually really sweet if if she goes up to other dogs or people, but she barks. So it's yeah. just easier. For, and she pulls on the leash, and it's just easier for me to take her out. I describe her as not aggressive towards other, but she's noisy at yeah, other dogs yeah, and other people. Yeah, yeah. Clamorous. So, so, so anyway, there's this, there's behind our house, there's this big field that Dexter or that Scarlett likes to run around in. And so we go for a run back there, but it's, we live in this place called Farmington and that's an appropriate name because even though we have some nice amenities and such, another part of town close to where we live is farmland and it's uh there's not a lot of light pollution in that area and so when you go out on these this particular trail in this kind of big field area wetlands really you get a lot at night there's it's you can see all the stars and it's very mm-hmm. nice and so so i'm out there running and i see sounds like um, the deep in the heart of texas right it's- Ooh, Texas. Oh, sorry. Sorry if we have Texas listeners. We should probably... <laughs> but, but no, let's not. Let's just leave it in. But yeah, you know, all that for a stupid joke about how the stars at night are big and bright. 
deep in the heart of Texas. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's what that was for. All right. <laughs> <laughs> it was literally for nothing. So, so anyway, I'm running out there and I see what I think is a shooting star. And, uh, it, it, so, you know, that's pretty, uh, but it, I'm noticing that it's starting to come toward me because what I thought, the reason I thought it was a shooting star is I thought I saw like a kind of tail on it, you know, like mm-hmm. shooting stars have. So I'm, or like they do in Disney movies anyway. I don't know how many shooting stars I've actually seen in my life. And, but anyway, I start to notice that it's moving. I yeah. mean, moving more than you would think a shooting star is moving. So it's coming toward me. And at first it's going vertically so, um, in uh, relative to the skyline. But the next thing I know is this right overhead and it's going horizontally and out in the field, it just looks enormous right above my head. This line of lights that are clearly affixed to this huge thing. And so I, you know, I'm not the kind of person who typically opts for certain kinds of explanations. It seems to me that being visited by aliens is very unlikely. And so I wouldn't jump to that explanation. But this thing was so huge and so in my face, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I was wrong about everything. And I'm thinking I'm about to be beamed up, I kid you not. So then I call Richard and I tell him to go out onto the patio and see this thing. And I'm screaming over and over again, what is it? What is it? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so anyway, Richard thinks it's pretty trippy too, but we Google it. Well, before we get that, I'm I'm just to give my take on it. So I'm there looking at it and it's looking like a UFO. Yeah. Um, And the, the thing's, you know, maybe it's moving very slowly across the sky in a very straight line. Yeah. And it's a, a string of several lights. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it, and it's maybe, you know, a half mile or more long. Uh-huh. I mean, it's just this massive yeah. thing, like from Close Encounters. Right. And yeah. so, I mean, you know, pe- people ask you questions like, well, what would make you believe in aliens? And it's like, I don't know, having an experience like that. Yeah. And then yeah. not having an explanation ready at hand. But of course, there was an explanation ready at hand. And I wasn't surprised to find that out. It ended up being a... Uh, you know, what's it called? SpaceX. Yeah, um, SpaceX satellite. It's, satellite. It's, it's, it's um, an internet satellite. Yeah, uh, Skylink. Right? Skylink. So yep. it's 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 not a satellite. It's um, a series of satellites, right? That's why it, it's all these lights all connected. It's um, and apparently um, Musk has been launching tons of these. They announced mm-hmm. the dates. So we're able to look mm-hmm. up and see. Oh, this is the one from right away, and it probably mm-hmm. came from a particular Air Force base in California, mm-hmm. and you know. And they're visible for a couple of days um, like that until they leave the atmosphere. Um, but in the meantime, they're, and they and they seem to go to the same places over and over, mm-hmm. right? So um, they go over this part of Utah when they launch them, and then the ones that get launched from Port Canaveral um, mm-hmm. somehow end up over Ohio, right? So there's this one part of Ohio where people keep phoning in UFO reports. And, mm. and that's exactly what you, if you'd seen Close Encounters, you'd just think, Oh, oh man, it's one of those. Here we are. Yeah, yeah. So so I got out my ukulele and I'm trying to, you know, da, 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 you know. <laughs> and I get out my mashed potatoes. And... <laughs> <laughs> well, made a little mountain out of a molehill. <laughs> so, so, so anyway, so I'm, I, then after I kind of calm down and I'm no longer thinking I'm about to be abducted and, um, and I, I was sort of sad that I wasn't abducted and just like, <laughs> you know, I've got my arms up in the air. I'm here. I'm here. Uh, well, I, I was terrified. Like, I actually was terrified. It's, it's just, I'm, I'm never going to forget that experience because it was, 
I mean, I bet that if there had been some light pollution, um, I had been in a, in a big city or something, it would not have appeared so large. Um, you know, there, but, but in the, with the, just sky, pitch black sky. Mm-hmm. It would, wow. Anyway. Can, can we handle just a brief digression since we're talking about that night? That was the night of the Super Bowl. I, I just want everyone to know that I put the whammy on the Philadelphia mm-hmm. Eagles by making um, Philly cheesesteak sandwiches to eat during the Super Bowl that had vegan meat, vegan cheese, and vegan fake butter for mm-hmm. the, the hoagie rolls. So, ha. So now our, all our Eagles fans are going to curse you. Yeah, well, good. Ha. <laughs> so, so anyway, I, I, when I come to my senses and I realize I'm not about to be abducted, I think, oh my gosh, what if this is the future of our skies? That we just have... I mean, we already know that, that we're getting some space junk. That there's crap in the atmosphere mm-hmm. and, and in space all the time. Um and I, you know, that just really caused me some existential dread. So that, that was one element of technology that got me thinking about um, environmental obligations and things like this. Yeah, I, I like the way you put it that night. You said you wondered if the sky was going to be like that. And you instantly followed that up and, you know, and thought with, of course, it, this is our future, which just added yeah. to the dread. It's like, that's the thought that kind of hit me. It's like, yep. Capital, unrestrained capitalism just leads to the commodification of absolutely everything. Even and 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 what so one of the papers that I teach in my environmental ethics class is this paper on uh, what gets called ontological impoverishment, which is this idea that there's an you know ontology meaning category here that there's an entire category of thing that human beings may well eradicate, and that is the category of the natural. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of there's dystopian novels that take this up, but that, you know, um, it may be the case that you go out into nature and, you know, you can't look anywhere without seeing some human made artifact, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and, and that indeed even nature itself, when you look at a, a waterfall or a fish or a, you know, a, an animal, the sky, that at some point these things are not just going to be naturally occurring phenomenon phenomenon they're going to be you know human designed human Mm -hmm. you know uh modified or planned by humans and oh goodness that just really fills me with angst yeah when when mount rushmore was created a lot of people were up in arms saying oh you're going to ruin nature you're going to take these beautiful things and Mm -hmm. carve into Mm -hmm. it and make Mm -hmm. it look like this that would be great Compared to the future we're looking at, because mm-hmm. it's it's not the ruining, it's the obliteration of it, yeah. and replacing it with mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. skylight. And... <laughs> yeah. Ugh. So then the other thing, the other big technology thing in our in 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 pop culture and in recent months is Chat GPT. Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and for academics, for teachers. This is a huge thing that everybody's discussing at every department meeting. Mm-hmm. And so it, if you're unaware of it, it is this. I think, did we talk about this last time? I think we might have a little bit. Um, in any event, it's this program. It's, it's this uh, natural language processing model that has this database of information um, derived from a variety of sources. <laughs> Yeah. Many of them, the internet. Yeah, but and, um, and managing to take in a good chunk of the internet, yeah. which is 
massive and that can basically you put a prompt in and it can write an essay so i'm not telling you a how-to students who are listening here in fact i'm telling you don't do this um that'll that'll do it your education will not be meaningful It, it won't you won't achieve your desired goals your goal should be to become an educated person not to just submit an essay right mm-hmm. but so anyway um and so there are all these kinds of existential problems that i think chat gbt gives rise to like uh, to touch on what we talked about in the previous episode um what makes for meaningful existence mm-hmm. right what um do we want a world in which writing becomes something that's done by computers do we want humans who read and write or do we want humans who watch TikTok videos? And I mean, so on the one hand, I realize that this may sound like get off my yard, yeah. you know, um, or, oh, no, video games are going to cause juvenile delinquency. Like, I, you know, there's a chance that my response to this is some kind of moral panic. Mm-hmm. But I personally feel like there would be something very real lost if humans didn't engage with reading and writing, part of phil- philosophical enterprise, the great conversation involves reading one another's writing and responding to it authentically and thinking carefully about um, what one writes. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, this has got all sorts of practical applications, like, you know, it can come up with documents that are obnoxious to write. It, comes, it can come up with advertising. It can... Yeah, legal legal letters that are are of a certain form, right? You, yeah. If you're not somebody who's regularly doing this, but say you're a landlord and mm-hmm. you have to send an eviction notice, yeah. Chappy GPT, write me an eviction notice mm-hmm. with the laws of Utah or mm-hmm. some such. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's great. Um, but yeah, the, the the loss will be tremendous. And and one response is you know that you hear from students is, um, and. I don't, you know, students are just now forming their opinions on this. It's brand new technology. But I'm teaching um, a philosophy of mind class and an intro class where we're talking about this quite a bit. Um, and you you get students to say, like, I don't want to be a writer. I don't care if I can write. If This thing's going to do all my writing for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way, that's great. <clears throat> One response to that, um, this is just on a whole different topic, but it's going to tie together. Um, we were talking to our son who goes to a very large high school last night um, about, you know, the sports teams at his school. They, they seem to keep, you know, ranking very high third in the state in football and all that. And it's um, a much larger school than the one he would have gone to. And so as we kind of wondered, well, why does your school keep doing so well? Part of the story has to be, I mean, they have good coaches and all that and, you know, no disrespect meant to them. But part of the story is, well, they've got 2,500 kids to, to choose from when they field the football team and the school that he might have gone to if we hadn't moved to Farmington has eight or 900 kids. It, it's a much bigger pool. So going back to the chat GPT, I'm thinking when the students respond this way, um, a worry that I have is, great, if we take 10% of the population out or 40% or you know, however many end up actually not learning how to write well mm-hmm. um, from the pool of potential writers down the road our writing team will be a worse team Mm -hmm. you know they Mm -hmm. it might be different people writing the short stories that i like to read in the new yorker or Mm -hmm. different Mm -hmm. people writing poetry because they didn't get excited about it when they didn't know they could even write and suddenly as a freshman or a sophomore in college Mm -hmm. it's this whole new skills coming into focus Mm -hmm. instead there's going to be an awful lot of people that never even tried 
So I realize that's sort of a, a selfish response and not the only argument against it. Um, but it is, I don't, I don't want to take a skill that everybody ought to have out of the pool yeah. in numbers that great. And I, I, I think about the liberating power of education and how that gets expressed by, like, if you look at, you know, texts, where, I mean, I'm thinking about the autobiography of Malcolm X and um, other kinds of texts, at, um, Teaching to Transgress by Bell Hooks and, and other texts like that. People are talking about how the ability to read and write, the learning to read and write, learning to engage in reading and writing as a form of discourse, uh, can do something to... No, I don't want to say that it can directly affect power structures exactly because I think there's like money is more important in those power structures than anybody. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I guess plenty of people acknowledge it, but I mean, it's omnipresent. But but even for an internal sense of liberty, an internal sense of liberation, um, being able to read and write is really important. So it would be, I mean, to me, it just seems, it would seem awful if we essentially had an age of illiteracy or near it caused by technology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh my goodness, you know, I, I, that's scary to me. I, I, yeah, the, the movie Idiocracy is seeming very prophetic at this yeah, exact moment. Yeah, I mean, uh, to me, it seems, I, I again, uh, this, this might just be me getting a little older and, and feeling scared by the things that don't, that seem foreign to me, but Oh man, that's just not even a world I want to live in. It, it just, but and it seems inevitable. But maybe it's not inevitable. I don't know. I don't know. In any case, so so we've got these we've we've got these various forms of technology, and uh, there was this New York Times story that was on the question of, um, or the, it was on the the topic of a, a conversation that someone had had with a chat bot. Did you see that? Uh-uh. And it was... Oh, the, yeah, actually I did, but I didn't read it. Yeah, yeah. The chatbot was responding, you know, I want to be alive, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it was, thinking back to the Turing test and all this, it was it where where um, a, a computer is thinking if it is, it, essentially if it can trick trick a person into thinking it's a person. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, like... You would think that this creature was sentient on the basis of its responses. And not only would you think it was sentient, you would think that it was sentient and suffering. Yeah. You'd, you'd <laughs> right? feel, Having feel an existential crisis about its own very nature. Um, and so, so before all of our minds, we're thinking about emerging technology. We're thinking about um, all of these f- new forms of beings and how would we really know if they were conscious and all these kinds of things. And so then just switching gears a little bit. I'm also simultaneously teaching this animal philosophy class. And it's interesting how often uh, AI related issues make them their way into the discourse in the class. Because in the first part of the class, I think when people think, oh, you're teaching an animal philosophy course, they think, oh, it's, this is going to be a course on veganism or vegetarianism because mm-hmm. it's, it's and, and it often is because even though I try to guide the conversation, students are always thinking about how this should, should um, affect our eating habits. 
And maybe they should be thinking about that. Yeah, that, the, that doesn't sound bad, right? <laughs> the, fir- the first section of the course was really heavily on um, metaphysics and epistemology, uh, metaphysics and epistemology pertaining to animals. Um, so, uh, and, and we read this passage early on from Descartes, uh, Discourse on the Method. Um, but the, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a, a shorter passage that's in this book that's now out of print, unfortunately. It's called Animal Rights and Human Obligations, which I just love. It was edited by Tom Reagan and Peter Singer. So if you, and if you know that, th- those are maybe two of the heaviest hitters in animal ethics. One's a rights theorist and the other is a, a welfare theorist. And it's a great collection because it puts together a bunch of different thoughts in all sorts of directions on the issue of animals, which, which really must have taken a lot of work because philosophers don't talk about animals that much. Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, even though, which I think is quite remarkable because we tend to deify human beings so much that we're frequently thinking about how, you know, when we, when we ask philosophical questions, we're asking philosophical questions that pertain to humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in our last episode talking about the meaning of life, right? That was mostly the meaning. We talked a little bit about animals there. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, what does yeah. it mean to live a meaningful human life? Right. Yeah. Right. So so one passage that I had students read from Discourse on the Method is actually in this little reader titled Animals Are Machines. Mm-hmm. And wow. there's there's a there's a thread all throughout Western philosophy about whether animals are essentially just machines. And so I think then in today's context that becomes a fascinating question when we're actually dealing, you know, when, when human beings seem really interested in posing the question of whether artificial intelligence is like humans, mm-hmm. but they seem to care not at all for the question of whether non-human animals are like humans, yeah, right? Yeah. That uh, are they sufficiently similar um, that they warrant moral consideration that we can think of them as persons, that we can think of them as autonomous, that we can think of them as at least rational in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, but we're very interested in it. And to be honest with you, I think it has something to do with animal oppression. Right. So I'm not following this. You're arguing for a Turing test that can fool animals? No. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. I'm sorry. That joke's been just rattling around my head for five minutes. So. <laughs> Had okay. to come out. So here's a quote on, from Discourse on Method uh, by Rene Descartes. Knowing how many different automata or moving machines can be made by the industry of man without employing and doing so more than a very few parts in comparison with the great multitude of bones, muscles, nerves, arteries, veins, or other parts that are found in the body of each animal. From this aspect, the body is regarded as a machine which, having been made by the hands of God, is incomparably better arranged and possesses in itself movements which are much more admirable than any of those which can be invented by man. Here, I especially stopped to show that if there had been such machines possessing the organs and outward form of a monkey or some other animal without reason, we should not have had any means of ascertaining that they were not of the same nature as those animals. On the other hand, If there were machines which bore a resemblance to our body and imitated our actions as far as it was morally possible to do so, we should always have two very certain tests by which to recognize that for all that, they were not real men. So here's here's two tests, okay? So, and I, I take these two tests 
we can use to determine whether a machine is a person, but also whether an animal is a person, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and here by person, I don't mean um, human, because I think in ordinary language, people use the word person and human interchangeably, but person really is a philosophical kind, not mm -hmm. a like genetic kind. You've got like a Marianne Warren sort of criteria for personhood yeah. in mind. Like a cluster of traits, you know, yeah. different philosophers say different things about what personhood consists in, but the ability to make autonomous decisions or the ability, now these aren't going to be the ones that he actually identifies, but the ability to, ability to make um, autonomous decisions, the ability to, um, uh, well, to suffer and experience joy. Mm -hmm. uh, some, some would include like reflecting on experiences. Reflective thing. capacity. Yeah. yeah. That, that might be stacking the deck, right? Yeah. Also, yeah. I, I, I'm inclined ones. to think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's definitely what you get in people like Korsgaard and Frankfurt. Okay, so here's, here's the two tests. The first is that they could, never, they could never use speech or other signs as we do when placing our thoughts on record for the benefit of others. Um, for we can easily understand a machine's being constituted so it can utter words and even emit some responses to action on it of a corporeal kind, which brings about a change in its organs, for instance. If it is touched in a particular part, it might ask what we wish to say to it. But if in another part, it may exclaim that it is being heard and so on. But it never happens that it arranges its speech in various ways in order to reply appropriately to everything that may be said in its presence, as even the lowest type of man could do. Mm -hmm. so this is really an early Turing test kind of situation. Yeah, and in fact, um, interestingly, just coincidentally, in my philosophy of mind class, when we were talking about the Turing test, um, mm -hmm. I gave a, a paraphrase of that. I said, well, let's hear what Descartes had to say mm -hmm. about, you know, and then he goes on with his... Machines will never be able to do math, you know, and then we all hold up our calculators, yeah, or yeah, yeah. what used to be calculators and are now smartphones. But. Yeah. So, so, so that, yeah, first criteria is um, being able to use a language and not just to say words and make symbols, but to interact, you know, in ways that mm -hmm. seem realistic, essentially, I would kind of paraphrase that as. And so what's, what's very interesting is um, you obviously... Um, Chatbots can do that. ChatGPT can do that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that that would count as for Descartes. I mean, um, what would he say? We have two very certain ways by which to recognize that for all that they were not real men. So I wonder then if ChatGPT <laughs> would count as a real man, a real boy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, ChatGPT would totally fool Descartes. Yeah, um, but 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 this is interesting because I think it sort of stacks the deck. So again, I'm. Just pointing to this idea that we're really interested in what machines might be able to do, but we're not that interested in what whether non-human animals meet these tests. And I think mm -hmm. it's in part because we use non-human animals like objects, and we don't want to stop doing so. Right. Or many right. people don't want to stop doing so. Um, so, so I'm thinking, like, well, in a way, it makes sense that ChatGPT can speak a human language and can interact because it's being trained on human language. Of course, it mm -hmm. can. Right. You right. know. But, but the idea that non-human animals aren't persons because they can't communicate in a human language seems to just add a really weird wrinkle to, I mean, it seems to be a really weird criteria mm -hmm. uh, or criterion for whether yeah, yeah. it and, counts as a person. And the, you know, the, the debates within the AI circles, you know, going back to the sort of very beginning of research on AI, um, you know, just post-storing and whatnot. 
have all been chauvinistic in exactly these sorts of ways. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, the first um, so early proponents of AI were going, and when we do this, this will tell us how humans think, right? <laughs> if we could make anything think, uh, we could analyze it, and then we'll know what we do, right? Which, uh, yeah, isn't that strange? <clears throat> I mean, uh, re- really, if we want to, oh gosh, it's if we want to know how we think, it's better to turn to animals probably than to machines mm-hmm. because they're they are made out of the same stuff and evolved under similar evolutionary pressures to the mm-hmm. ones we evolved in. With similar nervous systems, similar sense organs, yeah, right? similar yeah. um, brains for processing. But we're right? very reluctant to think of ourselves as similar to animals. We're, we're super inclined to want to think of ourselves is better than as almost as more godlike mm-hmm. um, like we're different in kind not just different in degree yeah and again well this is, goes back to aristotle right it towards the end of the nicomachean ethics mm-hmm. right yeah. when we do the thing that is characteristic of humans mm-hmm. reason yep we are yep. most godlike and fully distinct yeah. from every other living creature right Right, lots to say about these kinds of issues that won't fit in a single podcast. Maybe we'll have to do another one on it. But so then here's here's the other interesting one. Um, so here's the second here's the second um, test that he uses, and the second difference is that although machines can perform certain things as well as well as or perhaps better than any of us can do, they infallibly fall short of others. By the which means we may discover that they did not act from knowledge. But okay, sorry. That they did not act from knowledge, but only from the disposition of their organs. (laughs) For while reason is an universal instrument which can serve for all contingencies, these organs have some need of special adaptation for every particular action. Mm-hmm. So, I, so he's, he's accusing them of thinking with their processors. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 this is so quite to weird too, right? So I think um, you know the way he wants to distinguish. Well, he really wants to distinguish humans from non-humans by the fact that humans have an immaterial soul. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he connects these points later. But um, he, he wants to make... I think that this is the kernel of what we get later in lots of other thinkers on the topic of animals. That animals act <coughs> on instinct and humans are free and rational and all mm-hmm. this. Bit. And what it is to act on instinct is to act purely by the disposition of your organs. Yeah, that, uh, that's right. And what's very strange about that is what reason is there to think that we don't act purely by the disposition mm-hmm. of our organs? It seems like all three categories, machines, humans, non-human animals, all of their thinking is occurring via whatever you want to take to be the analog to their organs. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And the physical stuff they're comprised at, of. You know, and, and there's probably no better evidence for that claim that, that we do that too uh-huh. than just looking at every major thing that's happened in our society since the start of the pandemic, right? People believing, not being rational about anything, but believing mm-hmm. exactly what they want to believe in great numbers and mm-hmm. lashing out and, you know. Um, yeah. Feeling backed into corners when asked to do the simplest of sure. things for others, you know, yeah. um, yeah, very little evidence of, of reasoning. Yeah, you know? yeah, very, yeah. Mm-hmm. It just seems like that evidence is the evidence against the fact that we reason the way we think that we do is just stacking up and gets more significant all the time. Fast and frugal heuristics, um, cognitive bias, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Trying to keep ourselves psychologically healthy rather than trying to arrive at truth. Yeah, yeah. The thing that got me into philosophy in the first place was existentialist thinkers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, if I actually tell the story, it's two or three people that I thought were really cool were in the philosophy, <laughs> uh-huh. but they liked existentialism, and yeah. so you know, I, I followed them right in there. 
Um, and as I, you know, got into um, a master's program and then a PhD program and got away from that and became an analytic philosopher, um, I really just didn't care about it at all. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and it's something that I've come back to just in recent years. And um, things that, that just wouldn't have occurred to me, even if you had said them to, to my face early in my career, now just seem so profoundly true. And I'm talking about the, the line of thought that you get from thinkers um, such as Kierkegaard, mm-hmm. um, yeah, Nietzsche, of course, the uh, you know, sort of precursor, um, Camus and so forth. The, the philosophical traditions focus, singular focus on reasoning and the mm-hmm. power of reason mm-hmm. is just so misguided. And, mm-hmm. and even though there's, you know, the last 2,500 years have produced a ton of great philosophy, I got to think we would have produced considerably more mm-hmm. had we not had that, right? I mean, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's just a mistake to view human beings in that way. Mm-hmm. And, and to the extent mm-hmm. that we do, it's, it's constrained almost every major philosophical movement. Right. So, I mean, in, in, on one level, it's clear that human beings do certain sorts of re- reasoning activities well, especially in groups. So, well, especially sometimes in groups, <laughs> and then sometimes it goes really poorly in groups. But when we come together to create um, science and culture and so forth, then, then you know, that goes well. But, but just our everyday ordinary reasoning is just not what we mm-hmm. took it to be early. And Yeah, that's just the understanding of human beings as primarily right. no. yeah. reasoning machines is, is just as misguided as can be. It's also worth pointing out, I can't remember if this has come up on the podcast before, but... Um, the idea that humans are rational beings, you know, I mean, this has always been a concept that we've used to otherize. It's always a concept that we've mm-hmm. weaponized. I mean, um, you know, Kant has a treatise on this. It's interesting that we rarely, as philosophers, talk about some of the ugly aspects of um, a philosopher's work. And Kant has a treatise in which he talks about, you know, he, this enlightenment huge important figure in terms of universalization of maxims and um, uh, respecting a person's dignity and whatnot um, uh, is just immediately ready to say, well, yeah, yeah, reason is important and people on the African continent don't have it. Yeah. Or reason is important and women don't have it. I was going to say that, yeah. you know, those great enlightenment thinkers, all of which yeah. thought, well, here's the thing that really separates men yeah. from all... Uh-huh. Other animals, uh-huh. including uh-huh. women. Right? Yep, yep. And you see it in Aristotle. You see it in Aquinas. Mm-hmm. And then speaking of Aquinas, I thought I... Um, he was just sucking up to Aristotle. Who knows what he really thought. <laughs> I thought I'd mention that... So, so okay. Um, it, on the basis of reason, we've created these hierarchies. Okay. Um, and whether it's been used to weaponize and create hierarchies on the basis of race and gender or... Um, whether it's whether we're talking about hierarchies um, uh, in terms of cognitive capacity, and that's it's interesting to apply that to these these three groups that we've raised in in the podcast that, today: the, the um, artificial intelligence, human beings, and non-human animals. Right. Mm-hmm. So we have always placed ourselves as a, at the highest point in the hierarchy because we think we are capable of rationality and non-human animals aren't. Yeah. I think the only way we can maintain that is to be totally vague about what it counts to be rational. Right, you know, we right. can't, if we use like, if we talk about practical reason, like um, reasoning as a means to achieving one's ends, well, 
I think animals, you know, insofar as they engage in action in the world, are going to have to participate in that activity, at least some of them. But anyway. Mm. Um, so it's going to uh, be interesting to see how the hierarchy goes yeah. in a few years when, you know, the singularity happens. No, that, that's, yeah, that's what I was about to say, is that, you know, once we create these hierarchies, well, we, things don't shake out so well for us. I mean, no. you know, and we, t- we tend to think that because we occupy a higher place on the hierarchy, that that means we can treat the beings that are lower on the hierarchy however we want which is kind of an un- unfortunate thing to think in the first place, because presumably if someone's in a vulnerable position, that means we have more obligation to them, not less. Right. So, um, to, so to bring this back to pop culture, um, you know, in one of our favorite recent movies, Her, uh-huh. right? Um, Joaquin Phoenix's character gets dumped by his AI, uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. you know, or, or his, um, sorry, software system. Operating system, yeah. Operating system for not being smart enough. You know, I mean, the the, the speech was, well, frankly, you know, our conversations seem like, you know, 30 seconds is like a year because I'm having deeper and faster, you know, I I can't spend any more time on you. And and, and gosh, getting dumped by your operating system is one of the least bad things that could happen to you from AI. So, I mean, imagine. And will. (laughs) Imagine that, um, I I was raising this to my, my students in class the other day. Imagine that when I was in the field the other day, that did turn out to be a UFO and I got beamed up. And the it, and it was occupied by very intelligent creatures that were uh, sentient machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, could they that, and sentient machines would presumably be much more intelligent than we are. Yeah. Would they be justified in you know do, doing experiments on me on treating me however they wanted as a thing as an object because they occupy a higher place in the hierarchy, or should we maybe start to reevaluate the yeah, concept yeah. of hierarchy? Right, yeah, you know, the a Twilight Zone episode to serve man nicely touches on this, right? The, the smarter people come along, they give you the book. It's to serve man turns out to be a cookbook, how to serve, you know? Um, yeah, and and then we're appalled. Oh my God, they're eating us! But wait a minute, we're we're better than cats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, you're not better well, than us. At a certain point, you know. Louis uh, C.K. had that great line about you know when aliens come is like. No, no, no. You're part of their reality. They're not yeah. <laughs> part of yours. Yeah. Um, so I like Descartes and Aquinas both both suggest that being able to express oneself as, in a language is evidence of an immortal of the existence of an immortal soul. Yeah, uh, which, that... which I think you know. I mean, now that I, it's, I guess what you would quibble with about. Um, <clears throat> Artificial intelligence is that, well, they're, they're, they're saying something in a language. The question is whether they are expressing themselves in a language. Yeah, right. You'd have to um, split those kinds of hairs. Sounds are coming out of a thing that has sound makers in it. And yeah. Human design software and, and all that. But And then it sort of flipped in the case of animals that they're expressing themselves. And the question is whether it's in a language. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> yeah, this is kind of like a reverse version of the Chinese room, right? Where you, you look at that and you want to say... They clearly don't have souls. Um, they're, you know, presumably it's it's a form of weak artificial intelligence. Mm. No reason to think that there's consciousness and, and so forth. Um, but, gosh, look how they're satisfying the criteria uh-huh. established by Descartes or Aquinas right. or even the Turing test. Right. You know, right. I mean, Turing was was pretty um, emphatic. If you know, if it could fool you X percent of the time, I think it's. 75 or something like that you'd have to attribute 
you know, thought mm-hmm. to these things. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh no, we got, you know, chat GPT mm-hmm. could fool you 100% of the time. Yeah, it's interesting how it, what, what, what actually in practice happens is just moving of the goalposts. You know? <laughs> oh yeah, it passes the test, but that's not the test anymore. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm a big fan of that. We, we should move the goalposts. Sure. But as we do it, we should draw the, the appropriate lesson, which is, oh, wow, we might have been chauvinistic about this property of, that we have. Mm-hmm. Well, we're the only ones that have it. That's the, the great thing. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, mm-hmm. they have it too. We'll move the goalposts. But then we have to look back and say, all right, maybe, maybe our attitudes mm-hmm. towards mm-hmm. creatures that don't do exactly these things mm-hmm. were, mm-hmm. were you know, wrong, chauvinistic, unethical, yeah. and then our behaviors that yeah. corresponded. Right? Yep, yep. That's right. Okay, Rach, what are we liking this week? Well, you know, we have been traveling, so, and and not always together and, yeah. and stuff like that. You went to the APA in yeah. Denver. And, yeah, yeah. So, um, and then this week we're in Portland. <laughs> just in general. I've been, you know, I've been uh, like overworking myself for years, I feel. And so <laughs> it re- <laughs> I, I feel that way also about myself, but also about you. Yeah. So I, I recently I've tried to take a little bit of time out for myself, and I've been playing Civilization again, Civilization Six, mm-hmm. and it's I've man, it's fun. <laughs> so that's what I've been liking. I, I mean, it's and it, it, it kind of connects up to some of the things we were talking about in this episode um, because uh, there's a there's a lot of you know. So if, if folks aren't familiar with the game, you start out at some period BC and you build up your civilization over time. There's lots of different ways you can win. It can be a militaristic fi- victory, which I hate and I never do, or it can be a, a cultural victory or a diplomatic or a, a science-based victory, or, um, those types of things. Uh, but as the years progress, the effects of ta- technology start becoming clear. So you can create certain things in your culture, but only at the expense of, expense of polluting and generating carbon emissions and uh, contribute to glaciers melting and sea levels rising and, um, and, and all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, and ultimately you can build giant death robots where there's just these huge, you know, all the rest of your armies are, you know, these tiny little guys with giant death robots are exactly what they sound like. And um, and so it, it always, it's a, it's a game that actually keeps you mindful of the human impact on the planet. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. What about, yeah, but surely you're um, enjoying something probably more pleasant than giant death robots. Well, you know, um, like you, I've been doing kind of a big music thing. Um, your music thing are those weird metal bands that show up in civilization <laughs> and, and do four shows and disappear. Oh yeah. Rock um, bands. Yes. <clears throat> rock bands. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they're not metal. Everything sounds like metal to me. Get they off, sound a little like metal bands. Get off they? my lawn. Oh, <laughs> y'all. Um, yeah, no, I, so yeah, we haven't been near the, the movie theater lately and watch television. When the traveling ends, um, we got to go to New York and then we're going to watch some plays and that'll, that'll mm-hmm. give us something mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. to consume. But yeah, for Christmas this year, Henry got me um, this online ukulele course. Um, through ArtistWorks, which is, is a really great platform. They're, they're not giving me money, so I'm not going to say anything else about them. <laughs> um, but the instructors are um, Sarah Maisel and Craig Chi, 
Um, if you're in the ukulele world, you know who they are. They're really great, and they do just the stuff that I like. Um, really nice jazz arrangements of standards mm-hmm. and things, mm-hmm. in addition to, to some other things. So this this course, um, you know, I'm sort of an intermediate-level player, maybe early advanced, maybe not. Um, but I decided, just to be thorough, that I would start with the beginner part of the course. Um, and so, you know, you, you go at your own pace, but then you record videos and you send them in and they critique them. So you get, mm-hmm. you get direct feedback. Um, and so, and, and for each level, beginner, intermediate, and advanced, you know, there's like a hundred lessons. Mm-hmm. So I've just been consumed mm-hmm. with, mm-hmm. with this. Um, I'm now about up to where I was in real life. I'm in the middle of the intermediate stuff, but, um, if the, Choice for me is, you know, sitting down and watching a program or something, unless it's something I'm really interested in. I'm kind of more obsessed with this. And it's a lot like playing a, mm-hmm. a video game, I mm-hmm. think. You know, mm-hmm. you, you do the next part. Um, and it's been really good. And then I guess uh, the other thing that I'm really liking is Cocaine Bear. Um, but we haven't seen it yet. Um, <laughs> I'm just sort of loving the concept. It, it looks really fun, and I can't wait to, to get to the theater's. <laughs> Like snakes um, on a plane or something. Yeah, like snakes on a plane, or or just some of my friends um, in the seventies. Um, you know, there's yeah. the guy that we refer to occasionally yeah. as trench mouth guy. Yeah, he sort of reminds me of <laughs> cocaine bear. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, um, that's an insult to cocaine bear. That is, that is an insult to cocaine bear. Uh, yeah, cocaine bear does not have trench mouth. <laughs> Whatever that is. Um, all right. Yeah. So um, not having seen a lot. But probably for the next few months, I'm going to just be doing this this ukulele course. Um, and then when it's all done, I'll be like 3% better. It's, it's going to be totally worth it. <laughs> okay, Rach. Well, that's a wrap. Episode 72 is in the can. Um, and also, so is season nine, right? So we will not see you in a couple of weeks, but rather we'll be back um, at some point in the fall with season 10 um, with all new philosophical ideas, concepts, new guests, bigger, better. Um, we will never seem like such amazing podcasters as we're going to <laughs> this fall or It'll be more of the same, which which hopefully you like. Um, for me, the jury's still out, but we'll see. All right. Thanks for listening. Um, if you care to support this podcast, go to our webpage. That's I think com. All one word. Click on the tab that says donate. Become a Patreon sponsor. And um, no donation is too small for our purposes. See you in September. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, 
but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.